we are talking about the Hollywood schmooze. I was talking to Alex about this as well. Do you think you have it? Do I think that I have the Hollywood schmooze? Well, I don't want to answer this. <laughs> oh God, this is going to go on my like dating profile. <laughs> <laughs> the views, information and opinions expressed in this podcast and this YouTube channel are solely the views of the individuals involved. It does not reflect the views of their organizations, employers and employees, past, present and future. Uncool is produced by Creators at Work and Story Machine. Like this show? Then rate it five stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast produced, written, and hosted by Sean Lee Chong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim, and edited by Ray Ng. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. So, if you don't know by now, Yen Ling's actually been recording this entire season over in the US. Not the most uh, common place in the US, I have to say. I'll let Yen Ling tell us about it. Oh yes, right now we are in um, north of Pennsylvania. I mean, it's not a typical town that you'll be visiting. You know, it's not the New York City. It's not the LA of uh, US. I wouldn't have even known of this place if I wasn't here on my assignment right now. But yeah, it's an interesting place. Little Greenview. She's probably like one or two or, or one of like 200 people in this whole place right Excuse now. me, 2,000. Um, and- <laughs> Okay, right. So that's slightly better, slightly better. It's like the population of the block of flats that she lives in like uh, on any no regular day uh, in another time. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. So, uh, and on that note, as you can see, you can't really tell, right? Because her her accent hasn't changed. She speaks the same. Uh, She's been there for about a few months now, but you know, Nothing much has changed. So we've talked a bit in this series about how there's a difference in cultures that lead to people communicating in different ways and how they you know, talk differently and talk in different ways. And I think, uh, you probably have felt that too. Yeah, that's right. Even though I spend a majority of my time here in Greenville, Pennsylvania, I've traveled across towns and some states, spent a little bit of time over there. Yeah, it's curious how each town and state has its own culture and the communication, the ways of communicating with one another changes in these places as well. One of the most common American cultures that we might be familiar with is more, you know, from LA, from Hollywood, or maybe even from New York because of the works of Hollywood. So today we've invited a guest. Uh, he's well been in LA. He has worked with multiple big networks, which some of you might be familiar with. Of course, we mean like the, the National Geographic, the Hulus, the Netflix, the Disney's. So he's made the rounds and uh, he's going to tell, tell us about the way that people talk there, right? What are we talking about now, Yen Ling? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the Hollywood Smooth with Alex Ho. Hi, Alex. Hi, Yenling. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I think first and foremost, just tell us what exactly do you do? Sean, that's a a very loaded question. Um, I do many things. I was in the military for six years. Uh, I was in the Army National Guard and I was a fire support logistics sergeant. So, you know, my family and I first moved here to the United States when I was nine. You know, I had always valued this virtue of duty, um, honor, respect. And you know, when you were kids, everybody's like, oh, like, oh, I really want to be a firefighter when I grow up. Or I really want, I want to be a princess. <laughs> you know, I think for me, uh, I grew up, it's like, wow, I want to, I want to be a soldier. You know, the rest, the uniform and the way they carried themselves, everything in the military, everything in the army is steep in tradition. It has a meaning and it has a purpose. 
And uh, I thought that that was something that was incredible. And what better place to do that than the country that, you know, in my adopted country, where I have a chance to give back and to be a part of something authentic and rich. I was definitely very passionate about this idea of service to to be a soldier, whatever whatever the hell that meant at the time. I went to school for photography and film, and as we all know in this call, in our culture, our parents, maybe our background, that's usually not the first thing that our parents uh, <laughs> expect us to say as Asian uh, kids or as an, even as an Asian American. But... Um, that was something that I, I fell in love with as a kid and um, had uh, just the right opportunities come along at the right time. And um, after about three to four years in uh, Hollywood and in, in big networks and in corporate in the corporate side of things, I decided to take a leap of faith and uh, move back to my hometown and uh, start something here. Taking many turns and um you know, to end up back in my hometown. But um, I'm currently the business manager at Creative Digital Venture Labs. Uh, it's a small digital marketing firm looking to um, <clears throat> build a bridge with our parent company in Singapore, Creatives at Work. And another thing we need to ask is, because uh, you mentioned how you were like a suit. So what is it like to be a suit in LA? Like what is, what is a day or what's a normal week like? I'll set the context of like wh- wh- where I was and what I was doing. Um, because I wasn't so much doing like the actual work of a suit. I was in a program called the Executive Incubator where we selected nine people from across the company to take part in leadership training uh, to become like network executives. And so the nine of us had specific areas in production, marketing, development. A lot of people came in for like casting and development. But essentially, once you got into this program, you were kind of on a PR roadshow, I would say, um, to like experience all the different networks and and different facets of the, like how our product was made. And so you would just sit in, in a lot of meetings and, you know, you would just brainstorm and and present ideas um and a lot of times you're just sitting in a room just talking you know just like just talking sharing your story it's a lot of sharing your story sharing your perspectives uh, and then something will will come about and it's like oh you want to take a look at this contract you want to take a look at this overall deal um with ryan murphy you know it's like that's like cool stuff but um definitely a lot of meetings about what kind of stories we want to tell and uh you know, how how can we make the production happen on the physical production side? Because our job as physical production, uh, on the physical production uh, department is to build worlds. And is this feasible? Does it fit our budget? And if not, how do we send these notes back to the showrunners to, you know, tweak? That's a, that's that's one sliver of it. It's like, it, it's almost, it's almost too difficult to answer in like one sentence like what we do because it's like every department is so specialized and it's it's very niche how does it feel like to go like write a note to the show and i'm like ryan murphy and go like, oh you, you can't do this you have to do this instead well nope first of all nobody tells ryan murphy like like ryan murphy does what he wants <laughs> you know so i once heard from one of my mentors that production is like the principal's office meaning that they're the ones who write the checks they clear the budgets they're the administrative folks on the studio side. And then the cool kids are like casting and development because they're sitting with the cool kids at the lunch table and they're like making these deals and like really rubbing shoulders with it. I like production, but I, I would say that definitely like a lot of the, the quote Hollywood moves you want to talk about, that's like for sure. Like the like in the thick of it is like in de- development executives. Like they have to be, have to be good with people, have to be good at talking because they're the ones who negotiate deals and like rework scripts, right? So for a lot of production people, 
you know, it's like we show up, it's like, all right, what do we need to build today? And how does this fit in the script and in the budget? You know, I wouldn't say that we like really write, give like, we don't really give creative feedback notes. I'm glad we don't give creative fe- feedback folks. We le- let the casting and the development and current series folks do it. Our jobs is when we read it, like, okay, there is a shot here in Central Park. Do we bring in a crew? Do we bring in lights? How big is it? How big is the crew? What is this budget? You know, we've got six locations here in the script for our pilot. How can we be most cost effective? Do we need to bring this on to set? Do are we doing this on our state stages or are we doing this, you know, rent like getting permits like to to bring in our crews there? You, you have to think like a producer. So one of the initial like assessments that they gave us was they gave us a script for this program and they said, read it and give us your best assessment of it. And so a lot of people like read it and they were giving creative feedback. I did not read it that way. I had all of my like notes were budget, location, equipment, talent. <laughs> you know, it's just like, just kind of taking that apart. So um, to make a really long uh, answer short, production people tend to, they're the builders of the set. Think of it that way. We don't really give like creative feedback on of course, there are limitations, you know, of what we can and can't do. It just sounds like the way that you do it in Singapore, but with more people involved and not one person doing everything. Right. I mean, as it should be. <laughs> this is a collaborative effort. Yeah. So you grew up in Asia and Singapore as well, right? And then you came to small town America and then you moved to the big cities where you, of course, as Sean mentioned earlier, you were in all those recognizable brands and um, companies and we are talking about how the different cultures actually affect how people communicate did you feel that and how different was everything for you 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 know I think the first thing that comes to mind is comparing it from a place like Singapore and a place like the U.S. is that Singapore has I mean it's an island it's a small city state with what I think how many people now it's population five million six point something coming to six 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 million sure but within there there are subcultures but it's largely a pretty small place Uh, when you come to the u.s you not only have states you have cities and within cities you have more subcultures so the biggest thing here is that there's just a different communication style for for virtually everywhere you go right um But at the end of the day, when you look at the vastness of the U.S. um, and you see all these states within these state cities and subcultures of different areas, it's hard to really put into words until you come and experience this for yourself, just how different people are. Uh, I'm sure the common denominator is that we're all Americans, whatever that may mean today, but um, everybody communicates differently. Everyone has a different value system and um, they like different things. I mean, this this is just, I, I'm not saying anything that's like unique to like, you know, just different countries and different peoples and stuff. But yeah, it's just, it, it's hard to really encapsulate just how huge this country is. Um, <clears throat> and one of the ways to measure that is just like the market size. But um, certainly, I think New York City and LA kind of have like their own little ecosystem. And within that is like their own country. But and then even within LA, there's like, you can split it into like 12 different regions. It's just it's it's just so it's hard to really articulate. It's just hard to to really express how um, unique and and huge this place is. But um, at the end of the day, growing up in, in Singapore, and then comparing that to even small town America, it's just night and day. Do you see that there's a big difference in just in the way that 
American talk to each other as well. I guess in Singapore, it's not so dessert, it's not so obvious because we're kind of small as a country. But so in there is, you know, no matter how people still talk the same. Uh, let's just look at the U.S. and Singapore as an example, and the way that the the education system is set up, the way that um, the government is set up. It doesn't allow for a lot of innovation. Stricter governments, and most of the time they're Asian governments, the way that they can roll out efficient measures and, and put protocols in place, they can do this, these things very fast. But it is a reflection of the innovation that comes out of these countries because the people and the way they think tends to be very linear. And you fall in line, you follow the rules. Um, and there's benefits to that, but there's also disadvantages for that. And when you look at European countries and Western countries in general, especially the U.S., where a lot of innovation comes out, a lot of individualism is is really emphasized. Your values, your opinions, these things matter. We don't see a lot of, um, you know, the, the government is not efficient here. Everybody knows this. Like, <laughs> it doesn't have the same connotations of, you know, working for the government in Singapore, for example. So I think that is... A, right there is a very stark contrast of what we're seeing in a place like Singapore and different countries and just as a whole in the US, right, is that people here, they have opinions, they express them, you know, very, very um, passionately. And I think that there is almost built into the fabric of America and Americans is this idea of like re rebelling to revolt, especially against any sort of authoritative figure. Um, and if you look at the history of things, the United States was founded on this idea where we had colonists from England come here to start a new life, to try and colonize the new world. But in that, they evolved to a stage where they wanted to be independent and they revolted against the monarchy, right? So I think built into many Americans, the way we talk, the way we we learn um, that in our history itself is that Americans, they will always rebel against any sort of controlling measure. So that's why that I, think, I would say that's the biggest thing. It affects our speech. I think how people um, communicate, what I find very different is the amount of emotion and the amount of passion that is put into the way that people speak. I think that's very, very evident in especially comparing Americans and what they talk about as compared to most Asian cultures, what they talk about and what matters to them. When we are communicating to people, right, it's always about communicating ideas and maybe trying to get someone to buy into your idea. You've experienced both, right? The big city, Los Angeles, and then now the small town, Greensboro. And all that. So what is the main difference, you think, if you sum it up, if you just 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 talking to the way, you know, the way that people talk and, and communicate? Well, Sean, I think that the biggest difference is that time moves a lot slowly. Um, in the small town, in the big city, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a little bit and then moved out to L.A. is that it's a constant go, go, go. And um, whether it be ideas, meeting new people, that's the biggest thing. Then the next thing would probably just be like access to, to you know, a social life. <laughs> it depends on what you really value, right? Like here in Greenville, Pennsylvania, like our town has like four traffic lights a Walmart. You wake up on a Saturday, you cut grass. And this is an exaggeration. You can ask Yenling. You wake up, you cut grass, you go to Walmart, you get some groceries, and then you just chill out for the rest of the day. Like that that's that's life here. And uh, it's a good place to raise your family, but it's, it's definitely not like it's safe, you know, it's quiet, but um it's not what someone from the big city might might think like, "Oh, that this is fun." Like, uh, I don't know if it's fun, but um yeah. 
but you lived in LA. Let's talk about LA a little bit because I think a lot of um, Asians, Singaporeans, when we think about the US, we either think of the new, we either think of New York or LA. I think because that's the two most seen cultures uh, in Hollywood, and that's what we see. So, how are the people there like? And how I think it takes a certain character to live there as well. Yeah, I I would agree. But but full disclaimer before I answer this question, I certainly don't speak on behalf of like everyone in, in LA. Um, I've also never lived in New York City. I've traveled to New York City many times, so I I can't like I can't I can't be overlord of of this. And my opinion isn't like final, but I can I can speak from personal experience. So I, I think the biggest thing with with LA is that. We call it the town, right? And a lot of people come in, they're, they're, they're looking for a place in the industry. And when you kind of say the industry, uh, in quotes, like that's synonymous with like Hollywood and movie making and show business. So the industry is kind of like this colloquial term there outside of tech, I guess. But um, it's, for, it's, it's referring to entertainment. So a lot of people come in, they grind. It's just a notoriously cutthroat and and very competitive industry to get into, and I would say that um, a lot of people there are are um, they're, they're, I think people on the West Coast are a little bit more chill. Um, you know, it's like I wouldn't say wear shorts to work if that's like a microcosm of of how people um, go about their day. But you know, people surf. You know, that whole like persona of like, oh, you're gonna catch high tide. You know, like go go surf, like go drink some beers in the beach. That's that's kind of like what LA is like on at least on the west side. Yeah, I think that there's also um, alongside that, you know, because you're in a, in a notoriously competitive industry and you are with people who are hungry. You and and the world, the world comes to LA. Why? Because it is the epicenter for arts and culture. I mean, I I would I dare say this won't change for another hundred years. Um, and uh, and if it does, we'll see. You know, there there different different pockets around the rest of the country that's starting to try and mirror that. But I don't think they're going to be as success, successful as LA. But um, people come here for that, and uh, with that brings a lot of different cultures, a lot of different customs, and the way people think. Right? Like, I think uh, sometimes it's it's interesting to see how people get from you know like side by side comparisons of people who come from the small towns and want to make the name for themselves, but then you also have people who come from you know different countries and and are they're just like this Machiavellian approach is like I don't care I'm gonna cut everyone down around me and um we'll we'll see we'll see how this ends up you know it's it's uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition now for New York City I, I can't really speak on that but um just this these these two cities in general um that's where a lot of opportunity is a lot of jobs a lot of the big names big companies tech law entertainment they're all there and so I think naturally just like um. We have to just kind of look at the city as a whole uh, and what, what that brings. But where you are, it's like everyone just needs to work at Walmart. Well, uh, it's more, think like mom and pop shops, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, right, right. But yeah, well, I'll tell you what this place offers is that we sit at an intersection of where, what was this steel powerhouse industry? 
right? When the railroad uh, was coming through, the, this area was kind of the manufacturer for all the steel that came out of, that went into uh, Pittsburgh and, you know, Cleveland and Chicago. Like this, this was a main hub. So when manufacturing moved to China and moved overseas, a lot of businesses closed down. And so it offers a chance for a lot of new businesses coming in to kind of explore where land is cheap, overhead costs is low. So it's a good place to start and at least parachute into the US market. We are talking about the Hollywood schmooze this episode. And then um, this came about because I was talking to Alex about this as well. <laughs> is there really a thing called the Hollywood schmooze anyway? Uh, for, I, I kind of hate that I brought this up, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> when I was reading the notes, like, oh, great, Hollywood schmooze. <laughs> I, 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 I think about it. Like the, <laughs> the first time I ever heard this this term, the Hollywood schmooze, when, was when I was in, at Disney. Uh, I was talking to a seasoned um, producer uh, and he said to me, you know, Alex, you got it. You got the Hollywood schmooze. And I kind of <laughs> asked him, I was like, well, what, is, what does that even mean? He goes, you know, people like you. You're meant for show business. And, and I guess I took it as a compliment because he was a mentor for me. But um, but he also alluded to the fact that not clearly not everyone has this. What exactly is this Hollywood schmooze? And, um, and, and I don't know. I feel like it's a very like loose term. It's like this like this suave like. I don't even. Want, I'm not even trying to like say this about myself. Shrat, it's just like so it's cringe. So it's like this, like yeah, look at this confidence, like this, um, the like the ability to to put people at ease around you, to to come off as like trustworthy and like likable and reliable, right? So it's like so it's a positive thing, I, I guess. But yeah, I think the word schmooze tends to connote something insincere and maybe even manipulative, like to schmooze someone. I think of like a car salesman when I think of the word schmooze, but uh, I don't know if that if that's like a like an actual term that's been like stapled out in in town and in the industry. But I mean, I've, I think people have heard of this term. I mean, it works. I mean, that the car salesman does make the sale. It works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that's just when someone says, "Oh, you're a schmoozer," it's like, "Oh, you're like a sweet talker." But uh, I. I don't know. I, I don't know. I um, I think I I come. I think that because I come from, I'm just speaking on my from my experiences. I come from a business family. I also have this like entertainment background in in quotes, and uh, I think just like naturally, this industry that I come from uh, brings a lot of of very charming and charismatic and very beautiful people <laughs> who maybe perhaps for a large part of their life have gotten what they wanted by their looks, their smile, and the way that, that they talk. So I guess, yeah, I I have a lot of friends in LA that I was like, well, hey, like, like you're like a top model and like you're like you, you present yourself well, so you probably get whatever you want. Do you think you have it? Or what did you do that made other people think that you have it? Do I think that I have the Hollywood schmooze? Um I don't I don't I don't want to answer this. <laughs> I think that I have had people tell me that I am approachable and I'm charming. I'll I'll just say that. This is so cringe. Please oh god, this is gonna go on my like dating profile. <laughs> um the Hollywood schmooze. <laughs> I, I have had people tell me that that I'm I'm good at making people feel comfortable, I guess. And I've had people who tell me, Alex, you have the Hollywood schmooze. So Taking that at face value, I don't know. I I do try to conduct myself, um, you know, uh, as sincerely as possible. I want to to be transparent and intentional in in what I do. And uh, I have I will say that I haven't always come across that in LA, and you can tell. But what exactly makes someone have the Hollywood schmooze? If we're gonna use this 
term in air quotes. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think just being able to to be convincing that's the first thing, um, and to be a good self promoter. I would say those two things are are good summary of um, what the Hollywood schmooze is. Whether it be positive or negative aside, do you think this is something that you need in order to work in places like LA? You know, I think that this is a skill that you need anywhere in the world in any facet of life because life is a persuasive essay. My uh, writing teacher used to tell me that. Is that no matter where you go, no matter what situation you find yourself in, you can probably bet that you're going to need to convince someone or persuade someone um, in order to get to where you need to go. So whether you're in LA or even in small town America, you're probably going to need to be persuasive. I think that it's a, a, an essential skill in your journey as a professional, as you know, in your own personal life. I think it's, it's just a matter of articulating clearly what you want, defining what these things are um, in speech and in writing, and then executing that. I think that that's, it, it comes down to just clear communication. That's interesting though. Do you think you had to consciously practice that and train for it though? Yeah, I, I I would say that a lot of times I think pe- people have said to me like, hey Alex, you know you should start a podcast. Like Alex, you, you're like really artic- you're very articulate. But I think that the biggest thing is that if you look at how people talk, right? People who who have been branded like well articulated. I think that it comes down to just having a thesis. Like it it's a mirror. It's a mirror of their writing style. So in America, it, like in America, like growing up in the school system here, communication has been. Um, you know, it's something that is heavily emphasized, especially in your writing. Um, And maybe this is a a good thing to tie into kind of like how people talk here in your writing. You always have to have in your, in your comprehension, like your opening paragraph is like, what exactly are you defining here? What, what is your question? What is the very thing that you're trying to prove or disprove? And then you go into the supporting arguments, right? And so when people structure their conversations like this, in an, like model it after how you would structure, you know, a persuasive essay, all of a sudden, this person see, might seem, okay, well, there is some structure here. There is an easy-to-follow guideline. And wow, this person, whether they know it or not, whoever you're talking to, is like, well, this person's really articulate. And that might lend itself to this idea of like, oh, you know, he's a sweet talker. Or he or she or they, them are a sweet talker. And, you know, they're, they're, they're good at, at, I'm convinced. I feel safe. I feel like this person is confident and has they have this vision. And they're going to go with it. And so I, yeah, I'm comfortable with this. So... Oh, this person really schmoozes me up, but really, it's just effective communication. Mm, that's interesting. So we taught that in school. Maybe you should start teaching that in Singapore schools as well. Mm, they know. teach. They teach you. They teach you a few things in school. It's up to a person to connect <laughs> the dots. Do you think moving into um, the big city like LA changed the way that you communicated and you spoke as well, or was it something that you already carried along with you? And then brought it to wherever you you went to. I would say that going into a place like LA definitely tests a person's character. And I'm not here to say like, oh yeah, I came out of the crucible and I'm just such a change person because I think people who who like make that like the city their whole personality. I, I I'm sorry, I just don't really want to be friends with you, but it actually highlights this very real thing that people go through where they go to these cities and then they they if you are not grounded in who you are the city will change you 
it chews you up and it will spit you back out. So I think that for someone who wants to go to the big city, you firstly, you have to know who you are and lean in on the thing that makes you unique and different, right? Um, growing up from an, within an immigrant family from Singapore and then also going into the military and working in uh, entertainment, it puts me in a niche of a niche of a niche category. So, you know, I, I'm pretty self-assured in, in knowing like who I am, what I value, what I want to give to the world, what my, what my vision is. You know, you hear a lot of times like people, oh, I don't know what I want to do or I don't know what I want. Well, what they're really saying, what that really signifies is that they just don't know who they are. And I think that it, if we all had a little bit more self-reflection um, in this world, I think that there would be a lot more empathy and a lot more, um, or a lot less confusion. Yeah, the city definitely like could can change you, but um, you just need to be rooted in who you are and and, and what you want to offer this world. So okay, now that we've got that, now that we've clarified you've, with your vast experience from National Guard to Disney and so on, how does one do that? Like, how does one make that switch? from what is two very, very, very different industries. It's, you're right, it is a very different world. I chalk it up to just my insatiable curiosity and just like boundless energy. It's starting to slow down. I'm like rounding the curve into into my 30s. And I'm, sorry, I'm starting to slow down a little bit. Like, I feel like I've seen a lot for, you know, but there's still so much to learn. And I think that cultivating a, a love to learn is 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 kind of that that essential ingredient. But um, the military was uh, was was kind of. Its mean, own. Let, let's take a let's take a step back from that first. How did you even get involved in that? And then how did you get you know why why did you join guard and so like national guard? Yeah. The original plan was to go to West Point Military Academy. I'm not sure if you know where that is up in New York, but uh, it's one of the oldest military academies in the world. They produce. Um, the world's best military officers. And uh, that was the goal. So I, I enlisted when I was 17. My, my mom had to go with me to the recruiting office. And um, it was something that I was convinced that I, I had to do. Uh, or rather, not had to do, but wanted to do. And the goal was to, to do a year, finish my training as an enlisted soldier, and then go to West Point, which is exactly what happened. I finished my year, my, my year in my training. And then after a year, I received my commander's endorsement to go to West Point Military Academy as um, one of the, can the representatives from the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. So I think something like two representatives from every state's national militia or yeah, state's militia gets a, a, like an endorsement and then they get reviewed and then they can go in. So it's, it's a highly, highly competitive process. And in that final round, I realized, Hey, you know, I just, just, this just doesn't feel right. And I don't know what it is, but I just know that this isn't for me. You know? And so I was on the call with the Lieutenant Colonel and I said, sir, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to have wasted your time, but I, I just know that this isn't for me. And, um, you know, I think I was wrestling with many things at the time of, of also just kind of formulating the, the idea of like, who is Alex? What does he want? And I had this, um, without getting too political, I, I had this uh, conviction about why we were over there, you know, and why do I want to be a soldier? Like, was it to, to just like <laughs> go, you know, this not, like naive idea of like, we're going to go overseas, we're going to win this war in two weeks and we're going to come home as champions. Like America is a warring state. It is a warring country. And I don't know, I think I wanted to defend more than anything and, and uphold this this. Um, American way of life, and so I decided to finish out the six years in my in my contract with the, the uh, Pennsylvania Army National Guard. I think that was the best way to embody what service meant to me. And um, 
And I think that when we really take a step back and look at from a bird's eye view, from what I've, d- I've done, it, it really it boils down to following what you believe to be true and what you, what you want. And it came down to knowing what I wanted and just moving towards that with, with conviction and um, the belief that this is what you need to do. And I think for people like us in this industry, where we're storytellers, it doesn't matter if you're a painter, if you're a podcast show host, or if you're a graphic designer, we are all storytellers. It takes a skill to take and draw from your experiences in this world and in life and to stitch together a narrative that makes sense. And so, you know, it's simply put that I wanted to serve in the military. I wanted to give back. But I also really wanted to tell stories. You know, it's a part of my life as an Asian American where I firstly looked to stories on TV and um, in the in the cinema, and and I saw this firstly as entertainment. But then, you know, when you're living on, I'm going to say bubble. You know, I'm in a bubble in Singapore. You just don't really have a window into the rest of the world other than in TV, especially as a kid. And so, you know, I I saw this illusion that I I wanted to I wanted to recreate. And so, furthermore, when we moved here, you know, in a very conservative and very um, yeah, small area, part of the country. Um, that like kind of doubled down on this like idea of service, being in the military, but then also now taking a step back and saying, "Whoa, as you know, someone who's now finished this has this notch under his belt. What can I really do to influence and shape the face of culture? And that's going to be through stories. And how can I take two wildly different things and make it something really just?" Um, remarkably unique in in a place that that doesn't have um, someone that comes from my background. So, so how does someone just break in then? Because I don't think you can just walk right into Disney or the Nat Geo and say, "Hey, I, I'm a sergeant. Give me the job." <laughs> like, what? How, how did that happen? Uh, it's actually a really interesting story. Um, one I I love to tell. Um, I think that a lot of people don't give credit for luck. If luck isn't a special power, it should be. Um, because you can have all, like, I know people who come from the best schools in the world. I'll just say, um, that I know someone, I have a close friend just graduated from UCLA, like top of her class, president of like all these like business societies, very well connected person. And she's still can't get a job. I say this not like, because I'm I'm trying to like single anyone out. It's because that's, that's just the the reality of, of life that you need to be in the right place at the right time. Hollywood schmooze can get you so far. A professional resume can get you so far. But if you're just an unlucky individual, I'm sorry. You know, you're just unlucky. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. So the story with how I got into National Geographic, I was in Washington, D.C. around, I think, February or you know, around February of 2019. And um, I had made a comment about a recent production I had seen. And, uh, you know, there's a famous quote that George Lucas says like, oh, 50% of the movie going experience is audio. I'm sure you've heard that. Everyone in, in TV production has heard this. And I was ba- I was making that comment because I had just finished up a light and sound class uh, at school. And I saw this like it was, I don't want to say it was an amateur production because it was, it was lit well and the quality was so good. Audio quality was so good. I was, I was very impressed and I was just saying it to my group of friends like, yeah, hey, George Lucas says 50% of the movie going experience is audio and these guys did a great job. 
the as fleeting of a comment as that was, someone actually happened to overhear hear that comment, and he leans his head in and says, "Oh, you know, um, actually, it's more, meaning that." audio is more of the visual you know this movie going experience than than even visual itself and uh i don't know what you know about washington dc but it is not a production hub at least not not that i see it to be you know there's a lot of hill staffers a lot of lawyers that come through and so i i think i was i was intrigued and i wanted to know what this guy knew and um because you just don't really come across that many uh production folks there yeah like 10 months down the road this guy becomes this guy becomes my friend um and i never once the thing is i never once asked him where what do you do which is like if you talk to anyone in dc like that is the first question they ask you like this this is like a thing this is like a like a like a cultural thing that people laugh about it it's memed constantly it's like you could be dying and it's almost like, oh, what do you do? Like, it's chalked up to two things, right? Like, one, the world's greatest minds come to the center, of, like, like the capital of the country and they work there because they're just, they're so smart. And, and like, what they do, like, behind some random closed door down the street, like, 16th Street could be people making decisions that will, that will influence and shape, like, entire countries and economies. Like, that's pretty cool to me. And on, on the flip side, though, Maybe it's a derivative of the Hollywood schmooze, but <laughs> people also, what do you do so I can connect with you and move up to where I want to go? You know, like you always got to be resourceful. You always got to be thinking. But all that being said, production isn't one of those things where like people come and say, oh yeah, you know, I, but anyway. So I never asked this guy what he did, but I knew he was in production and he was someone who enjoyed critiquing work so I, I was a senior i was i was uh coming going to finish my senior year and uh i went on and i started sharing my films with him and uh the real reason i was in dc though was because i was i was actually seeing i was seeing a girl you know it was pretty serious and um how this ties into the story is that i think around august or september of that following year in 2019 um that relationship ended and because of that, subsequently, I called this guy. His name is Matt. And we became friends. You know, we were pretty close by that point. You know, I checked in with him regularly. He gave me feedback on my work. I called him for two reasons. The first was to say, hey, thank you, Matt, for everything you've done for me. Your valued feedback is, uh, it helped me refine my film and it got into a film festival. So I just want to say thank you. Um, the second thing is that, hey, um, this person I broke up and uh, I'm never coming back to DC again. I was so like, I was so irrational, you know, just like heartbroken. It's like, I'm never coming back to DC again. Have a great life. Sayonara. And he like stopped me. It's like, whoa, 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 hold on. You know, like Alex, you, you've never asked me what I did, but I work for National Geographic and I want you to consider coming on my team. And, um, you know, even if you don't know what you want just come in and shadow and see if it's right for you and and you know i think in that moment it, i was like so distraught like you know just kind of navigating a lot of a lot of like emotional turmoil in my life that had always been a dream because as much as i was a filmmaker i was also a photographer right and as, as so much of my philosophy as a storyteller and as an, as like and then someone in this industry it was that we create worlds that our characters find themselves in and for me the yellow border, National Geographic, has always been synonymous with travel, culture, exploration, and science. And probably like the both of you, you remember those yellow magazines sitting on the floor or tucked into a bookshelf. And so that was like synonymous. That was like the paragon of what I wanted as a photographer to like to be at that level. I tell you all this because it's like 
a setup for like how I wasn't thinking straight. And I like looked, I like paused for a moment on the phone with him. And I was like, you know, Matt, I have to think about it. <laughs> it's like, what, what's there to think about? You know, it's like, oh, dude, like do it. Like, so like, I, I don't know, like he set something up and um, I went in for my air quote job shadow. And um, one thing led to the next. And uh, I think that day I found myself in front of the uh, senior vice president and the director. And, you know, they're just having a conversation with me, wanting to know, like, where I came from. And um, and the, the person who I credit a lot of my success to, her name is Benefshe Kamali. She was a mentor of mine. She was actually responsible for bringing uh, Discovery Channel into Singapore. So she, she I don't know, she took a shot took a chance for on me and she said, you know, they, like I left that day and they offered me a job and I started that January. And then in March, uh, you know, the pandemic hit. So I got really lucky. Um, but yeah, I, they saw that I was a competent person. They could train and they liked my story. So yeah, that's uh, kind of how I ended up at National Geographic, which is a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. So luck is where it's really, really what you attribute this to in that sense. I would say it's an element of it. Yeah, for sure. Now that you've dealt with all that as like a citizen, I think you've been one yourself, I, I think. Um, how, how do you talk to people in LA to, you know, to, to go get your project started, especially, you know, in the Hollywood context, because I think many people would like to know, right? Like, how do you even get that conversation started to, to get your project moving? Like, what do you need to do? I'm probably the wrong person to ask this question, honestly, because, uh, you know, I think the strikes just, uh, on the writer strikes just wrapped up. We're still, the, uh, the actors are still striking. I was actually on the opposite side of the fence. You know, I was with this, I represented the studios, uh, the studio, I was another suit. <laughs> so people in this, uh, the ecosystem of like, oh, like we're artists, you know, like we need to tell our story, but then like the big man won't cut us the check. You know, it's like I was on the other end. I was like looking at the at the bit, the bottom line, the the budget, the overall deals and the contracts. That was me. So I'm probably not the best person to ask this. And I also kind of had like this definitely this like elevator to the top, and you know I had pretty much the resources that was already in, uh, embedded and and well uh, well stamped out in a hundred year old plus studio. Um, so, but, uh, I know that for a lot of things that, uh, you just got to know people, you know, and I think that so much of, uh, um, this industry, um, and success, it, it's really just about following up. <laughs> yeah. It's just like having conversations with people and knowing people, because I think success isn't, isn't about what you've done, what you've achieved, what, who you work for. It's about who, you know and the quality of your relationships. You're talking about how you need to know people, right? So let's say I don't know anybody at all. How do I break in then to Hollywood? Well, first, I think you have to be there. You got to be present. I don't have a step. Here are 12 steps to becoming successful in Hollywood because everybody's story is different. And the fact that everybody's story is different is a good thing. And it's unique and it's special because it's yours. It has to be yours. I think so much... They're like in the school system and in, in living life in like having like milestones and checkpoints or rather putting emphasis on ourselves is like, oh, by 30, I need to be doing this or, you know, by 25, I was this, you know, it, it, that's probably the biggest hindrance to you as a person in, in, in how you grow because life isn't going to work that way. Um, so, yeah, I would say definitely um being bold and curious, these are the essential ingredients in being successful at, at any early stage in your life. I thought that I was actually going to be a lifer in LA. I thought that I was going to spend a long time there, kind of being in the industry. Uh, everybody knows, though, that you don't go to Hollywood for stability. 
Um, and for someone who gets bored easily and wants to build and wants to influence and create things, a place like Disney and Netflix isn't isn't going to be the place to do it. So um, when the opportunity fell in my lap to come home and start something with a Singaporean company that's adjacent, to, maybe it's not so much like like TV writing and TV production, but it's adjacent. Um, I, I was intrigued. And so, you know, now we have this opportunity to really build legs on, on something in small town America that, you know, I, I like to say that our mission is to redefine small town America's marketing landscape. And um, so that's it. That's, that's what I want to do. Um, I have an opportunity to still tell stories, you know, and, you know, it's finding the beauty in that. But it's to be able to, to, to bring the world to my hometown uh, and to convince them to show them what, what is special about this place. Um, and who knows? You know, I, I think I used to have this like five-year plan, 10-year plan, 15-year plan, but life doesn't work that way. And um, I've grown up quite a bit since then, since uh, I used to think that way. But um, the next thing for me is just really to build something of my own to show that show something for um, for what we're doing here because I don't think a lot of people know what this place has to offer. But- and we ask every guest who come on this show this question because after all, this podcast is called Uncool. When were you most uncool? Why? And what would you say to yourself if you could talk to that person now? Um, when was I most uncool? I feel like everyone has the potential to be uncool no matter what point they are in their life. I feel like we are most uncool when we... <laughs> <laughs> when we uh, talk us, oh yeah, I have the Hollywood movies. That's like pretty uncool. But uh, yeah, I, I would say like growing up and try, trying to figure out um, what exactly who I was as a person, like in that that junior high phase, that like awkward <laughs> prepubescent stage, <laughs> where I was like not only figuring out who I was, but furthermore who I was as an Asian American, right? Because despite what you do and how you fit in like my my upbringing is a little bit different being like an asian american in small town rural america not only did i have to like grapple with like you know who i was as an asian but i also had to figure out what it meant to be asian and american so thanks so much alex for uh sharing with us you know all the way your journey from singapore and how you came into a whole different country and your whole experience through the military and then into some of the biggest companies in uh, entertainment. Yeah, if you if you want to find my work here, you know you can uh, look me up alexhoststudios.com. My demo reels on there. If you want to collab collaborate, just you know shoot me an email. Like this show, then rate it five stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast produced, written, and hosted by Sean Lee Winchong and co-hosted by Yen Ling Lo. Co-produced by Raven Lim and edited by Ray Ung. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. On the next episode of Uncool... Six, the loyalists, right? They don't like changes. They have a need for security. You said majority of people in Singapore are six. Majorities are nine. They don't like to think about themselves. They're very others-focused. They think for others, but they don't like to think about themselves. And if they don't like to think about themselves, the self-awareness is not there. Uncool. New episodes every Saturday.